Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Yama, a welcome to country acknowledge the significance of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. It recognises our boundaries, our ancestral spirits who created this land, and it allows safe passage for those who visit. It has been a cultural practice and observation in our community for thousands of years, and it is still observed in our communities today. Jinjela with a Bayan We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where Aboriginal people have performed age-old ceremonies of storytelling, music, dance, and much, much celebration. Bayami, Yaban, Dongara, Garaba. We acknowledge and pay respects to our elders, those of the past, the present, and those of the future, for it is they who hold the dreams and aspirations of Aboriginal Australia. We must also acknowledge the gratitude that we share this land today, my sorrow for the costs that our community has borne to have you to share our country with us, and my hope and belief that we can move to a place of equity, justice and partnership together. For underneath the asphalt, for underneath the concrete, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Gamukuwananala, Beriwangal Malabai, Binibaunada, Dindiri Dada, Badwa Mawa. Welcome, people who speak a language unknown to me. Your homelands are distant. But sit near, for tonight your minds will work. Let them open, let you hear, let you listen and think. We have sayings in our culture that mean many things, and later on I'll share one with you. But tonight is important for us to remember those who were removed from our communities and the legacy that that has left and the scars in our hearts. To that we say, Ninyari, Wangai, Ganunga. And that means that we will always remember them. May the wisdom of the wedge-tailed eagle watch over you tonight. Wellama. Thank you, Auntie, for that warm and generous welcome. Before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. On behalf of my colleagues at Sydney Health Ethics, I would also like to acknowledge the harms visited upon Aboriginal civilisation by European colonisation that extend to present day. On a personal note, I wish to express my despair at the continued affront of the 26th of January as the National Day and the continued failure of public policy to address the harms to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. My name is Michael Robertson. I'm a psychiatrist and I'm an academic here at Sydney Health Ethics. We are delighted to partner with Sydney Ideas today and co-host this important event. 
We are humbled by the topic and privileged to have helped bring tonight together. It is wonderful to have tonight's speakers come together and be able to listen and learn from our discussions. I want to acknowledge the contribution of Dr Edwina Light from Sydney Health Ethics, without whom tonight would not have happened. I'm also grateful to Bronwyn Morell from Sydney Health Ethics for her valuable contribution. I'd like to extend apologies from Professor Frank Schneider from Aachen University in Germany and the former president of the German Society for Psychiatry and Psychotherapy. Due to ill health, Professor Schneider was unable to travel to Australia. Professor Schneider led the process of German psychiatric profession's engagement with its crimes under the National Socialist period that culminated in a formal apology delivered in 2010 to the families and victims and survivors of the Krankenmörder, the murder of the sick. Professor Alan Rosen will speak to the topics he was due to present. Uh, Professor Schneider was the coordinator of a travelling exhibition, Registered, Persecuted, Annihilated, The Six, Sick and Disabled Under National Socialism, which is showing at the Sydney Jewish Museum this month, and I commend you to visit this. There is information here tonight about the exhibition and other related events happening over the covering months. A reminder that tonight's proceedings will be recorded. It's now my pleasure to introduce the chairperson for this evening, Professor Steve Larkin. Professor Larkin is chair of the Healing Foundation and Pro Vice-Chancellor for Indigenous Education and Research at the University of Newcastle. He has, he has and continues to serve on numerous national advisory committees in Indigenous affairs and holds appointments on several boards, including Beyond Blue. He is now to head the Bachelor Institute of Indigenous Tertiary Education in Darwin. Professor Larkin has been very generous for us with uh, his time this evening in one of the busier weeks of his professional life. Thank you, Steve, and welcome. Thanks, Michael, and uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners, uh, and thanks, Joanne, for your warm welcome. And so as tonight, welcome to this panel session, uh, Working the Past, Aboriginal Australia and Psychiatry. Now, I was told years ago that uh, anyone who thought they needed to see a psychiatrist probably should have their head read. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, moving on. <laughs> um, so as, as Michael referred to, I, I, I'm also currently the chair of the Healing Foundation and so we do a lot of work with stolen generation members and their families and descendants, uh, particularly around healing and the ongoing impact of intergenerational trauma. Um, but also looking at, uh, as Michael also said, being on also on the board of directors for Beyond, Beyond Blue and I can say that yesterday at the board meeting that um, uh, Beyond Blue's first reconciliation action plan got passed by the board and they're going to introduce an indigenous strategy around anxiety and depression for Aboriginal people but that's within the context of how those things are understood and shaped by colonisation. So I'm particularly interested even from those two roles apart from being an Aboriginal uh, person about uh, trauma and healing psychiatry and the, uh, and the helping professions in the context of perpetual disadvantage of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the ongoing practices uh, of colonisation. But tonight, um, we have three wonderful speakers and I'm going to, with your consent, I'm going to introduce each one of them in turn as they speak and hold questions until the end. And I'll make sure that, as Chair, that there's ample time at the end for questions and discussion. So, uh, I'm very pleased to firstly introduce our first speaker, Dr Robin Shields, AM a medical practitioner and psychiatric registrar who was a proud member of the Bundjalung people. Robin's worked in the Mental Health Centre for many years and uh, she's a Deputy Commissioner of Mental Health, the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales and she has an Order of Australia, as I said, for her, the, recognising her role in the development of, of Aboriginal mental health services. So Robin 
This talk will address themes of colonialism, displacement and trauma as context to understanding the mental health and wellbeing of Aboriginal Australians. Please welcome Dr Robin Shields. Thank you, Steve. Before I begin, I'd, I'd like to too acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we stand on, the Gadigal people, past and present um, leaders. I'd also like to acknowledge those with lived experiences that are here tonight um, and Aboriginal people that are in the audience. I'd like to thank you for, for coming. But before I start, um, when the idea first, I was approached by the group with Dr Robinson um, and Prof about what does it mean for an Aboriginal person living in Australia in 2018 and having to access psychiatric services? Um, and has there, and what should we do to correct past mistakes, if you want to call them, or past practices that have contributed to the mental health, the detrimental effects of mental health on Aboriginal people. But before I begin, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about myself. Um, because as, as Joe, and I'd like to thank you for that welcome, Joe, being a Gadigal person, um, it was quite warming to have it in language, which is very rare. Um, and I really appreciate it, and it made me feel quite warm, warmly welcome, so thank you. So, I'm a Bundjalung woman, and my mother's country is the Tweed, and Dad's country is Jagama, and I have a cousin in the, in the audience tonight as well. I grew up in southeast Queensland, and it was one of the roughest um, towns that you could grow up in, Ipswich. It really hasn't changed in the last 50 years. Um, my father, he was born at Breakfast Creek in Brisbane and he, um, he was moved out to the Perga Mission. That was the mission outside of Ipswich. Um, his mother worked as a maid and she was not allowed to have access to him. She could see him over the fence. That was the only time that she had connection with my father whilst he was growing up. He was the youngest at Pergamission um, and amongst other things, he, um, it was a Salvation Army run mission, but he did say at some point that they were very kind to him. Um, there was some understanding uh, so, for me, that was some relief because not a lot of people had that experience. Um, my mother, she was born on the Tweed in Coolangatta, Tweed Hospital. Her family lived on the Fingal Head Peninsula 
which uh, the government thought was appropriate at the time because these people couldn't access mainstream. They were happy leaving them on the peninsula. So she was never removed from her family. She grew up with her family but was isolated from the main mainstream community. And the only access they had to mainstream was they had to row a boat across the Tweed River to do their shopping. They met through Vern, my cousin's... Um, father. Um, Vern's father was born outside of Tweed and um, Dad and Vern's father travelled down to Fingal one day and that's where he met my mother. And the story went from there. They married and lived in Ipswich. But he had a very difficult life. Um, it wasn't easy. Um, and what I can recall, he, he was a hard-working man, as was Fern's father. Fern's father was in the Air Force and had gone to Malaysia. These were the opportunities that were available to Aboriginal people in those days. And Dad, he worked in the coal mines and then he worked, got a job in the railways. But living at home, our, our family home overlooked a large asylum. It was called Sandy Gallup. And every day, going to school, I remember the bus passing the Sandy Gallup Asylum and, and it was a place where no one talked about what was behind those walls. Um, and we just knew it as the asylum. And as I, as I grew up, I was fortunate enough to win a, a scholarship and I went to one of the private schools in Ipswich. So it was a bit of an eye-opener that during the daytime I could put on this school uniform and be treated as one of the girls from this very um, prestigious private school. But going home and playing in the parks uh, with the neighbourhood kids was a different story. Once the uniform was off, the cops would chase us through the parks because of the colour of our skins. Um, so... That was, that was life in Ipswich. Um, it wasn't easy dealing with that. And then when you would go to school, you had the history thrown at you that all the Aboriginal people were killed. There's no Aboriginal people alive anymore. And how did that leave me? I mean, <laughs> I purely was Aboriginal and clearly identified as Aboriginal, but to be taught that in the history lessons was um, just a little bit confronting and challenging. And, and I, being a shy person, never challenged the teachers about that. But I just thought, somebody's got this wrong. <laughs> but anyway, life got really difficult and I moved to Sydney and I started out as a career in nursing. And I um, then went through my training and after my training, I then went back into the hospital at Concord where there were a lot of soldiers, returned soldiers at that time. And I noticed that, and I was in psychiatry and I was working with a lot of soldiers that had post-traumatic stress syndrome. And it was like another world to me um, that these people had these traumatic experiences and I thought, Aboriginal people have had this too, but there was no recognition of Aboriginal people actually having any post-traumatic stress. Because Joanne will tell the history about um, 
how life was and how the past history. So I won't go into that. Um, so from then, I moved to Roselle and I started working as a psych nurse. And more and more it was becoming quite clear that what I was looking at was the devastation of, and humility of lives that had been affected by mental illness. And it was the first time in my life that I had moved from the road beyond those walls and I was quite moved by what I saw. People devastated by mental illness, they were isolated, marginalised group. I stayed there for quite a long time and then I met with the director one day and she had, um, was quite interested in Aboriginal mental health and my whole time working at Roselle there were no Aboriginal people using the mental health services and, and no one ever questioned that. Um, and when we looked at the stats and had gone through that, I think four people had come in through about ten, the whole ten years that we'd, we'd gone through the stats and most of the presentations were with police anyway. Um, so I began to think, well, where are the Aboriginal people in all of this? One, either um, mental health services are not adequately resourcing the Aboriginal community, or two, they've turned their backs on the psychiatric system altogether, or three, they were elsewhere. And sure enough, um, when we started in 1992, looking at what was going on, given our history of past trauma, Aboriginal people were heading straight to the prison system and that continues to happen today. Um, so we then, the director and I, we set up um, an Aboriginal mental health service in, in um, partnership with the Aboriginal medical service at Redfern and it was the first time that psychiatry had moved into an Aboriginal community and there was a lot of suspicion at first and there was a lot of stigma and a lot of shame that was associated with having to see a psychiatrist. But given that the psychiatrists that were working there um, had a lot of compassion and understanding for Aboriginal people, it lessened the impact. Understanding their story was so important and so, you know, we talk about transgenerational trauma. So my life went from there and we, we had this service uh, running and it's still running. It's at Prince Alfred today. It's um, the Aboriginal Mental Health Unit. In 2014, I had an opportunity then to um, do medicine, which I did. I got through. And um, it was funny, when I, when I left Concord, I had an exit interview with the... Director of Nursing, and she said to me, oh, you won't like it at Roselle, you'll be back. And I, I sort of smiled to myself and thought, well, I don't know about that, I may not be back. But I can tell you I had moments when I wanted to leave Roselle because it was a hard place, it was very confronting. And just re re going back to the comfort of Concord was much more easier than being confronted by what, what was going on at Roselle with the patients. Little did I know that I would end up back at Concord as a psychiatric registrar. So, in fact, she was right. 
I am back. So I'm back there and so it's been a bit of a journey for me and we can't talk about psychiatry and Aboriginal mental health without talking about the transgenerational trauma and its connection to the present circumstances. The current question is, uh, what does it look like in Indigenous communities and what therapeutic models are currently exist to address the impact of these transgenerational traumas? The area of transgenerational trauma is a difficult topic to discuss. It's about our history as Aboriginal people and we that stand here today, this is our history um, and we belong to it and we own it. And our forefathers have roamed this country for thousands of years. And it's in the history of contact between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this country that the ongoing results and challenges that we as a society face. So tonight I'm really speaking purely from an Indigenous perspective and this may or may not resonate with some of you tonight. But the history about, is about processes and in the end it's about winners and losers and that's what we've been seeing. There is no doubt about the experiences of Indigenous people in this land um, that's had, and it continues to endure overwhelming experiences on a daily basis of marginalisation, racism, degradation, separation and humiliation. However, to put this history into some perspective in one talk um, is a bit difficult, um, but we really need to understand the journeys that people have travelled from why we are here today. And Joanne will talk about past policies, but it's about the failures of groups of people that have, over the, the decades, controlled Aboriginal people under state law and state care. And policies that were initially designed to be our welfare were used to deliberately break the social fabric of Aboriginal society in some of the most inhumane methods. They used poisoning of waterholes, they killed babies, they rounded Aboriginal people up, they placed them in missions, they gave them blankets that were covered with um, smallpox virus, they introduced diseases that were designed to kill large populations. And the most confronting part of this history of Australia is that these policies existed solely based on race, and that was the Aboriginal race. And for some of us in this room, um, these events were not so long ago. And in fact, it, it occurred during my time and occurred during my parents' time and my grandparents. And it wasn't until the 1960s, in the late 1960s, that Australia's reputation was confronted about the willingness to recognise our existence as Aboriginal people, and that continues to be debated today, our existence in this country. And the recognition that Aboriginal people were given in the 67 referendum was because mostly it was the international shame and pressure that was placed on Australians by, good, by people of goodwill, and I'm talking about goodwill people, and some of them are sitting in the audience tonight. 
So the recognition of us being Australians through the 67 referendum, it brought about a lot of changes for Aboriginal people. But unfortunately, the generational and the intergenerational loss and grief and trauma had already taken place in communities. The scaffolding that was left was no longer passed down, could be passed down through generations that had been there for thousands of years. The ongoing experiences of dispossession for two centuries has stripped us of our dignity, our respect, has transformed our cultures and attempted a new force of, of a new identity upon us. Demographic collapse has intruded into the integration of changing circumstances such as cultural practices and beliefs, which also forced Indigenous people into a reactive stance against European influences. Rather than allowing us to experience the natural progression of cultural change and evolution, there was an artificial thrust into decline, breakdown, and there was no interpretation for our elders to interpret this, this situation, and it never existed in our stories. And it's almost impossible to talk about the transgenerational trauma without talking about the past events that have shaped Aboriginal culture today. And as we know, for the, greatest, for the groups, the greatest damage has been that loss and the cultural knowledge and the almost total depopulation that Aboriginal people have experienced. And Joanne herself will talk about it, so I won't overlap. But my interests are how does psychiatry stand in the face of Aboriginal people and assess their unwellness based on the experiences of colonisation when part of psychiatry has been colonising Aboriginal people using mainstream services, using Western psychiatry to assess Aboriginal cultural loss and grief. Where does it stand? And I think for those psychiatrists in, in, and those in mental health, I can see some of my colleagues, my psychiatric registrars are here tonight too, but I would like to, th to think about how they do their practice, their assessments. Is the history important for Aboriginal people? You bet it is. Has the history influenced their presentation to the hospital? You bet it has. And I go back to that vision that we all saw, that some of us saw last year of that young boy up in Darwin in the Donsdale Correction Services. Um, that his carers had actually handcuffed him to a seat, had masked him, had tortured him. Who knows what the history of that family or that child had gone through? If that's what caring is about, Aboriginal people have turned their backs on that. But what I'd like to also know is where was psychiatry in all of this? 
were they wittingly or unwittingly involved in not speaking up about the treatment of children and the damage that this does? Um, these are some of the practices that I think we need to start challenging if psychiatry is to be taken serious by Aboriginal people in this country and what it can offer them and what psychiatry can do to improve the stance of Aboriginal people. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Um, a lot of wisdom there based on a lot of years of experience. Our next speaker is, is, is Joanne Self. She's an elder of the Youth Koori Court in Nungarayura, uh, Project Officer, New South Wales Judicial Commission. She's also a founding member of Waringa Baye. I'm doing well. <laughs> uh, Aboriginal Women's Legal Service, a member of the First Nations Disability Network in New South Wales and of the National Congress of Aboriginal Australia's First Peoples. So Jo's going to speak to the lived experience of being an Aboriginal person and dealing with the mental health system. So please welcome Jo. I'm going to start with a story. And hopefully from the story you'll understand what's going to happen. All right, there's a story about a little green fog and the barramundi. And it was probably really lovely told by um, a woman by the name of Gladys Milroy. Now, the story goes like this, that there's a little frog and it's swimming around, but it's not real great and it can't swim to the bottom of the pond. And at this bottom of this pond, it sees the most beautiful rocks in the whole wide world. And it really, really wants one. And anyway, one day, the little frog is swimming, well, goes down to have a look and knows that he can't swim down to the bottom because it's too deep and he will, in fact, drown and die. And lo and behold, Barramundi comes along and Barramundi's sitting there on the rocks like this, asking what it is that you're looking at. And the little frog was brave enough to say, your rocks are really beautiful and I would really like one. And Barramundi, with that question, picked up a rock in its mouth and it gave that little frog a really, really beautiful red stone. And the little frog was so happy, but it said to Barramundi, I have nothing to give you in return. What is it that I can give you? And Barramundi very casually said, that purple flower over there, give that to me. And so the little frog tipped off that flower and popped it into the lake. It's only a little pond, really, but it's big enough to have a Barramundi. Big story, and I'm doing it real short. <laughs> so anyway... What happened is Little Frog was really excited by this and, and went on for days on end, picking up beautiful rocks and dropping flowers into this little pond. And had such a large collection of rocks that didn't need to visit his friend Barramundi anymore. And so it was a while before he went back to that pond and looked at Barramundi and looked for him to ask again for another rock. But this time Barramundi was lying on the surface and there were no rocks. He was surrounded by half-dead, rotting flowers. So it's only a little story, but let me just explain to you one meaning that Aboriginal people give that story. You can't give away your past memories. You need them to see the future. There are many ways to understand that story. We take stories from our communities. Those of you who are in the field of psychiatry, you take them from your clients with little in return. 
They consult with us over and over again as Aboriginal people, yet they ignore their own recommendations or fail to implement their own policies. Do we get caught up in what we have taken and fail to give back, to return to those people who have so freely given us their gifts? How many beautiful stones have been given and what have we done with those memories? As we hold the stories in our hearts and in our mind, it is our responsibility always to give back for our future. I stand before you as an Aboriginal woman who if I had dressed you 25 years ago, my address would have started very differently. And those words would have been, the colour of my skin represent the attempted genocide of my people and let's start that conversation now. For when we talk about Aboriginal history, we live it and we experience it. Transgenerational trauma just does not live in words and deeds, it lives in ourselves. And it is a level of spirituality and understanding that sometimes I know you can touch and sometimes there is a mirror that doesn't allow you to see. So I am an Aboriginal woman who's a mother of an Aboriginal boy with autism, lives on that spectrum. You'll get that story towards the end, but first, let's set the agenda. Knowing the past, it's sort of complex, but it's never objective. There are multiple histories and those who have got the loudest voice, they're the ones who usually are the most powerful and they're usually the stories we hear. But contemporary life for all of us is actually always shaped by that history. We look back and figure out what it is that we could have done better. Or we look at history as some sort of forlorn way of giving us some prediction for what's going to occur in the future. As Aboriginal people, we can talk about the dreaming, but you don't understand that that is yesterday, today and tomorrow. It was 60,000 years ago and it is also today. But perhaps if you could understand those sins, then we would allow your minds to live in our world and see some of the gifts that we could give you, but only if you stop asking. Because you keep asking for information, but you don't know how to write the right questions. So again, let's share some of those. Since the arrival of white people, and let's remember they were here well before 1788, but on that particular time they turned up with a bunch of convicts. La Perouse was out at La Perouse, and he was actually there talking up the big time with the Timbury family who still live there this day, who have the ability to speak French and talk about direct contact with La Perouse. But since that arrival, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from around our nation have experienced displacement. We have been the targets of genocidal policies and practices. We have had our families destroyed through the forcible removal of Aboriginal children and we continue to face the stresses of living in a world that systematically devalues us, my people and all of our culture. Such experiences have a profound effect on our health, our mental health and our social and emotional well-being for individuals, for families and for communities. You need to understand that all of those experiences we did resist and the histories of resistance and our resilience amongst that are a very strong part of contemporary Aboriginal society and culture. And our identity for that devastation is not lost. It is important also to remember that Aboriginal people are diverse. There is no one culture. There is no one people. There are over 360 Aboriginal nations that I know of. There are over 4,500 Aboriginal sites that I know that exist just in the Sydney region. The knowledge that we hold is immense. Psychology and the psychiatric profession has been complicit in that colonising process 
and its dominant discourse has been ethnocentric. It has objectified, dehumanised and devalued anybody who came from a culturally different group. And furthermore, your discipline was used, it was enlisted and it was enacted and used as a practice to justify the process of assimilation and oppression. Australian psychology and others within the broader community need to understand our history and they need to be able to celebrate that difference. But to celebrate it, you need to understand where it is we come from. So just a little journey, because the 90s would appear to be a decade in time that's not difficult for you to go back and think of. So there was an Aboriginal man. His name was Rob Riley. And he was a renowned Aboriginal leader and he was an activist for social justice self-determination. He presented a seminal paper at the Australian Psychological Society's annual conference that was held in Perth that year. He challenged the practice of psychology to facilitate Aboriginal determination in the treatment of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health. Rob was strong on the issue of social justice and how it related to the mental health of Aboriginal people. The current problematic mental health status of Aboriginal people can be traced directly to denial of social justice. The history of this is best told in the underlying issues report that was made by the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. So I'm going to just take a time here because it's something I've worked a lot on and it intersects with both my family and my working life. So the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody is the report. It doesn't matter how old it is, you go back, there is something for everyone. Recommendation 333, which I quickly looked up when you referenced Don Dale, apparently gives Aboriginal people the right to use the United Nations to actually um, to explain that we've been tortured and to follow due process so that we can have a just and equitable outcome. I work in the area of judicial education. My responsibility is to educate the judiciary on recommendation 96 and 97 of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. I do that work today. I set that program up 30 years ago. And I've come back and I've revised that and we still do it. Those two recommendations might not mean much to you, but put simply, they can affect any political or any other cohort that exists. And it is basically to provide opportunity to allow people to go into community, to be able to talk face to face with the very people that it is that you serve to listen to their experiences, their hopes and dreams and aspirations for their community and to listen for something that you don't know. It is a method of immense learning, but is one that only works if you're able to reflect on your own cultural values. What people refer to as whiteness, I don't, so look at the colour of my skin. I understand this from a different framework. But I also know in a group of non-Aboriginal people that they can actually all appear to me to be very white, but amongst them I understand their cultures. I know the difference between Catholics and Protestants. I know the difference between the Irish, the Welsh. I know their stories. I know their histories because some of them have similarities to ours. It is the right for all Indigenous people, for all First People, to expect that anybody who walks our land knows our stories. It isn't a bad expectation, but it is something that many people have failed to live up to. So let me share what I know off the top of my head. 339 recommendations, of which there'll be one that you know of. But that is all you need to be able to progress the work that you do in this state. What you need to know is of the 99 Aboriginal people who died in custody, over half were stolen generations people. It is that report 
that brought about the report on the forcible removal of Aboriginal children from their homes, another report, and I too gave evidence at that one. And I gave evidence as part of Warringah Bias, speaking about what it was to families, what that destruction was like. It was the first time in my life that I ever spoke about the patriarchy and white men, because I got to see one be crushed by his own non-Aboriginal community. So his whiteness and his maleness wasn't enough to protect his family because the person he loved was Aboriginal. In my family, I know these things. I grew up without a sister and without a brother. I grew up with two of my sisters. When you want to talk about policies that interfaced and interfaced in our family, that's how we talk about them, our family. Because in our family, we have both the people who persecuted us and the people who resisted. My sister and brother's birth were dobbed in by a member of my family. I cannot speak badly about them, although I find my relationship with them when they were alive was less than tenable. My mother, God bless her, as a strong Aboriginal woman that she was, she was the most forgiving person that I could ever be and I would never hold a candle to her strength. But that is the environment in which we lived, where your own grandparents are the perpetrators of the Ids. They are the ones who are happy to go ahead and implement and react to the policies of the day. Just like the rest of Australia, they thought they were doing the right thing. So have a look at that situation. We look at what the Royal Commission gave us. 25% of all Aboriginal, well, 25% of all men incarcerated today are Aboriginal. 33% of all Aboriginal women, of all women incarcerated are Aboriginal. And 50% of our youth. There is a juxtaposition between the representation of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care and those in the criminal justice system. That's not anecdotal. We've got the evidence and you know how to access it. So what we have to do is look at that, look at what that information tells you in a nutshell. Aboriginal youth are 28 times more likely to be placed in a juvenile detention centre than a non-Aboriginal person. Rates of conviction are at 70% within a two-year period. It costs $652 a day to keep it child in detention. I think it's a lot easier if we treat them in the community and can address the issues that of the impact of colonisation have had on our community. And you can sit there and decide that you can whitewash history just like Keith Shuttle tried to whitewash, Wind Shuttle, person who saw himself as a historian, person who saw himself as a member of the heart left but when given infallible truths, just uses his own history to whitewash what he doesn't want to see. I carry with me usually a pen that can write out ink to remind me what non-Aboriginal people are capable of doing when they don't like the history, when they don't like the part that they're caught up in. So I can't escape that, but what I can do is learn. So one of the things that I knew, and we talk about great moments in our history, and Robin was right to refer to the 90s, and during the time she spoke, Annie Pat Swan from the Aboriginal Medical Service at Redfern and another person with the surname Raphael penned together what it was, a definition of Aboriginal health, so we could move forward. And basically that says, health does not just mean the physical well-being of the individual, but refers to the social, emotional and cultural well-being of the whole community. This is a whole-of-life view and it includes a cyclical concept of life and death. Healthcare services should strive to achieve the state where every individual can achieve their full potential as human beings and thus bring about the total well-being of their communities. This is an evolving definition. 
When I looked at the questions that we had to frame around in terms of what we were going to discuss tonight, I just thought it was important that people understand that to know your responsibility, you need to understand your past. You need to understand our past and then what it is that we need to work together in the current situation. So if I think of the simple policies that I lived under in my 55 years on this planet, they've been those of protectionism, those of assimilation, those of removal, those of integration, those of self-determination, those of reconciliation. My call is Makarata. There is a lot of data that I could go through that reminds you the presence of Aboriginal people, but perhaps some things that were highlighted. Our youth suicide rate between 15 and 19 years of age is high five times the national average. When we look at Aboriginal people, half of all Aboriginal families report that they or their relatives were removed. And what you have to understand is that even if your family was left, as Yvonne Corley once said, unscarred by the removal and by the forcible policies of the time, it still affected her. It still affected many others. She still managed to win Wimbledon. But you understand that there were times when welfare were able to follow her around too and think about whether or not those are children that they wanted to steal. So they had policies on that too, which ones they preferred over others. And while we know that over one third of all Aboriginal people suffer psychological distress, when you understand our history and our current living conditions and how we feel devalued in the world in which I live, it shouldn't surprise anybody. We also know that Aboriginal people are very reluctant to seek out healthcare. And that's interesting because healthcare is a trusted profession. And I want you to understand I trust the services that are specifically made for me. And that's because I can walk in there, they know who I am, they know my history, they know my family. They know the words that will set me off and they know what things to keep me calm. Because when you're a stolen generation, there are things that people do to look out for you and for your mental health. We also know that we have a shorter life expectancy and you need to know I'm closer than eight years to that in my family's. Nobody's lived past the age of their early 60s. We're imprisoned 14 times higher than anybody else and the notifications for Aboriginal children moving into out-of-home care are higher. Our Aboriginal women experience violence 31 times higher than anybody else. Aboriginal men experience it seven times higher than their non-Aboriginal counterparts. So what does that mean? Let's have a look at something that happens today and think about those youth that I mentor in the Aboriginal Youth Court. Recent studies have shown that 86% of Aboriginal children who are incarcerated and this has come out of the Banksia program in Western Australia, had impairments in one of the domains of their brain function. Of the 99 who were assessed, only two of them, only two of the 36 FASD cases that they were able to diagnose had in fact been diagnosed. I think there is a problem about you can diagnose people but can you service them? Because sometimes the service needs haven't been met by the agencies. But basically we knew that for every nine out of ten of those children who were incarcerated, they had at least one neurological impairment and 65% of those had three domains where they were severely impaired. And when we look at impairment, we can think of it by itself, but Aboriginal people in our own community, 45% of us are disabled. Some of that's physical, some might be um, hearing, which is quite common in our community. But there is psychological distress and there is a lot of intellectual 
um, a prognosis as well. And when you're Aboriginal and trying to get your kid diagnosed for something, let me tell you, it's not an easy process. And I don't think that's necessarily good or bad, but it made me think about the services my relatives could have had out at Burke or other places. And I understand that what it is is that your area or your, your cohort wants to look at whether or not they think it, an apology is worth it. If you don't understand the history of Aboriginal people, then perhaps for you not. But you benefit from living on this land every day. And whether you see them or not, our ancestors walk with you and allow you safe passage. It is things that we think that it's time that you paid the rent. And so maybe we should think of what that could entail. I'm all for an apology. I've witnessed one 10 years ago. It was a really interesting time in my life. I was separated from my sisters on the one day that I needed to be together. Our parents had already been deceased, so that apology meant nothing to my family. And to my brother and my sister, who aren't even in the state in which I live, I have no idea how they celebrated it. But I was asked by a government head to actually head up something on a government agency because all the senior Aboriginal staff wanted to be there. None of them had actually had their family forcibly removed, but as I said to you, it does affect all of us and it affects us in different ways. They asked us to speak while I spoke before the Prime Minister did because I wasn't going to listen to what it was he said. I needed to set the agenda in that room. And so I explained to them that there are moments in time when time can actually hover for much, much more than a moment. And that's what that moment was in time for us. Rudd's apology, 10 years on, what does it mean? Maybe they're the questions we can start to ask today. But in asking those questions, there's a couple of things that you can think about. So we know that David Maher did some research for Reconciliation Australia to have a feel of what it was that Aboriginal people were valued or thought of within the community in which we live. I wasn't surprised by the surrounding comments that I'm going to make, but basically one third of the nation doesn't think that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture is important to the national identity. And 20% of the people who live and reside in this country don't think that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are worth knowing about. So it doesn't matter what it is that you want to do that's going to be good. You've got to look at the agenda in which you find yourself. It's easy when you surround yourself with like-minded people to think that everybody's going to think the same. But views can be very different. But Rob Riley thought of a couple of things that you could do. And you can go back and look at his paper and think of how it is that you can progress those. But there are two gifts that Aboriginal people have that questions need to be asked to provide them. But we have, in our own community, we have cultural practices that go back 60,000 years. We practice principles of Kenyini every day. And we have our own concept for what you refer to as mindfulness. And it's been around a lot longer than any theory or any practice that you can draw on. And you can find those things. Those words are easy to Google both in English and Aboriginal. So with that, I'd like to say, Yindi Yamara wing hangamai. And those words in Wiradjuri are fairly simple. But what they mean is that you need to learn how to share your wisdom. The wisdom of knowing how to live well in a world worth living in. Yalu. Thanks, Joanne. Our final speaker is Professor Alan Rosen, AO. And uh, Professor Rosen is a clinical associate professor at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney and a professorial fellow at the Illawarra Institute of Mental Health at the University of Wollongong. 
He's a former inaugural Deputy Commissioner of the Mental Health Commission of New South Wales and has been a leading advocate for all mental health professions to apologise to Indigenous peoples. So Professor Rosen will describe the project of working towards an apology from the Australian psychiatric profession to Aboriginal people for historical abuses. Please welcome Professor Rosen. case has been made, we really do need to um, um, <clears throat> make amends for what um, we have done in our colonial past as a nation and also for the um, second colonisation that occurred to a number of people through, um, through psychiatry and through the other mental health professions. Um, we're all involved and we all need to make amends and then show that we mean it. So my acknowledgement of country, um, I'm going to acknowledge also the Wangal clan because there is some um, difference of opinion about where um, <coughs> Gadigal land um, finishes. Some people think around Piermont, some people think it encompasses here. So. We acknowledge the past and present indigenous traditional um, custodians of the land where we meet today, the Wangal or Gadigal clan of the Eora Nation, and <clears throat> of all the lands from which we come. We acknowledge their elders, their ancestors and descendants, their ancient traditions and their living legacy for our world today. Um, as Michael was saying, Frank Schneider could not be with us and I won't have time to more than touch on, on the um, um, T4 program um, and uh, what he was going to talk upon, but it, it, is, it is important that we do mention it today. Action T4 and involved the extermination of individuals labelled as unfit, um, unworthy for life, useless eaters, burdens on societies or threats to the purity of and strength of the Aryan, that is Germanic, in their interpretation, master race. By this reasoning, German physicians joined the, the Nazi party because um, um, German doctors were wooed by the Nazis and personally by Hitler to serve the nation, not the individual. Um, <clears throat> and so that they, they um, German physicians joined the Nazi party more than any other profession and rationalised eugenic sterilisation, euthanasia and ultimately the elimination of black, Jewish, homosexual, Roma and other genetically inferior individuals as treatment um, of their patient and the patient was the folk, was um, the, the people of Germany. And <clears throat> it also had some economic advantages um, as they said, reducing pressure on the welfare budget, eliminating expensive disabled utilisers of healthcare resources, uh, and it was widely touted as such in posters and movies and readily accepted by receptive citizenry emerging from a national depression. No doctor was forced to participate or punished if they didn't, yet many did so with enthusiasm and continued to do so after the official end of the T4 program. Few participating doctors, only 16 out of 20, were punished at the Nuremberg trials or ever. Um, the excuse was that the, that the, that the laws um, 
one of the excuses was that the laws did not accommodate such prosecutions. The total number of victims is estimated about 216,000 in Germany, to which you could add 5,000 uh, from the previous sterilisation program, which started in 1933. Um, the um, um, Action T4 officially started in 1939, although there was some rehearsal beforehand, and ended in 1941 because of all the family protests and some other factors. But <clears throat> unofficially, it continued from 1938 till the Allies' occupation in 1945, and in one instance continued while the American soldiers had already um, taken over the town. So, um, the decisions were made by psychiatrists or physicians on the basis of the value of the individuals to the German people, and um, far from memorialising, many child and adult brains were preserved for experiments and kept for 60 plus years. And if you look at the history of the Robert Koch Institute, which is a very distinguished um, pathological institute, um, the Lancet has exposed how much they knew or, were, or tacitly went along with. Um, patients were transported in buses from, uh, from hospitals um, to one of six killing centres in psychiatric hospitals equipped with gas chambers. Um, and there's a number of connections um, we have also with them having preserved psychiatric art, like at Heidelberg University, but they also eliminated uh, a number of the, the people who made the art. Um, so it's quite offensive, some of the things that happened. Um, <coughs> the issue um, that most people look at is how this was the dress rehearsal for the Holocaust. Um, I will read you out the um, apology from the um, Psychiatric Association of Germany, um, which um, Frank Schneider um, oversaw. Um, there was a previous apology two years before in 2010 by the um, Medical um, Association um, of Germany, but um, that wasn't uh, widely accepted by the victim groups because they had not been consulted in its, um, in its construction. So the German, <coughs> um, in the name of the German Association for Psychiatry and Psychotherapy, I, I, ask, I ask you, the victims and relatives of the victims, for v forgiveness for the pain and injustice you suffered in the name of German psychiatry and the hands of German psychiatrists under National Socialism and for the silence, trivialisation and denial that for far too long characterised psychiatry in post-war Germany. Um, there was more to it than that, but this was the guts of it. Um, the issue um, arises in both the apologies that, there, is an, that the, you, there needed to be much more extensive prior consultation and assistance in the wording and the framing the attended group and to actually name what was done, um, just as we have heard from Joanne about the naming of, of uh, what has been done uh, in the name of colonisation. And also the goal of acknowledgement or acceptance, um, uh, the goal is acknowledgement or acceptance of the apology, not forgiveness. And both of those apologies ask for forgiveness and <clears throat> we have learnt from the whole literature now on public apologies that uh, we, we shouldn't uh, be asking for forgiveness. Forgiveness should not be asked for or expected. It is freely given gift of the recipients um, if they are moved to give it. And uh, um, so that an apology may, should be independent of forgiveness. Both involve vulnerability and both are voluntary. 
And this is the work of Grinswold and Benzeman and others, um, and it has, has now um, become an assumption. But, you know, we learn as we go, and th these were earlier apologies, and we need to learn from this as well. The bridge to Aboriginal experiences with psychiatry um, have really been um, built for us, amongst others, and particularly by Colin Tatz, who's sitting here. Um, Australian Holocaust scholar Colin Tatz um, has been arguing since, well, he's one paper in 1999, a recent book in the last year, argues that there are many parallels between the Holocaust and the plight of Aboriginal Australia after the arrival of Europeans, including attempts at ethnic cleansing and a form of racism manifest in an attempt at eliminative genocide, some words you can't say without an American accent, eliminative genocide, together with genocide denial. So <clears throat> the bridge we're trying to, to produce will take us to um, why have public apologies? Some people say it's raining apologies, and why is there such a tide of public apologies? Though rare before the mid-20th century, official public apologies have been accelerating over the last part of the 20th century, particularly from the 1990s, and continue to be voiced with no sign of abating into the 21st century. A lot of this work is done by Lazar and another bunch of stuff by Nobles. Likewise, the academic literature on formal public apologies and implications for reconciliation was sparse until the early 90s and has since become expanded remarkably. Lazar concludes, something, clearly something is changing in our culture. So why should we have an apology to Aboriginal, Australian Aboriginal people, particularly from not just psychiatry, but all the mental health professions. Um, because of excessive incarceration, which is still twice um, the psychiatric incarceration rate overall, plus 14 times the custodial sentence and prison incarceration rate, and I won't go over this in detail because Joanne and Robin have already um, covered this territory. The contribution to excess suicide rate, which is still two to five times worse and growing, um, in, in gap and the gap in average life expectancy, which is still 11 to 17 years, depending on the study. There's also a lot of disrespectful burial in unmarked mass graves on institutional sites, um, so ancestral spirits remain unsettled. Um, we have also found this happened with um, Australian Aboriginal soldiers from the World War I. There are still a number of people who've been buried um, in unmarked graves. Um, so there's been a double whammy of colonial domination and psychiatric incarceration. Indigenous people with mental illness have been colonised and dispossessed twice, colonised by both the colonising society and then by mental health professions uh, and professionals and by institutions. They have been dispossessed of their rights to culturally appropriate and clinical effective mental health care and it is time that all service users, including those of Indigenous heritage, reclaimed title to their own mental health territory. Was the harm done wittingly or unwittingly? It was raised um, in passing um, by previous speakers. We can surmise that many institutional mental health workers and professionals in the past, as in the present, were dedicated to the care of their patients and were trying to do the best they could in the context of the conditions and assumptions of the times. But at the same time, Many of our colleague professionals were paternalistic, 
held eugenic beliefs. Um, there's some very prominent um, physicians and psychiatrists who espoused eugenic beliefs and still performed and colluded with serious harm to uh, Aboriginal individuals and families. A much fewer number still do. And there were a powerful minority of rogue or corrupt staff who were cruel, abusive, and who stole food and supplies meant for inmates of institutions. And this continued to the 1990s. The last time we had an inquiry into those sorts of practices was in Victoria and led by Linda Stevens. Um, Don Christofferson, who's a Muran Aboriginal elder, says, I think with any story about anything, you need to know all the angles. So it, for so long, it has been the person who collected, the person who could write, the person who could construct all that information. They were the ones who told the stories and kept the information and kept the materials. You have to tell both versions, the indigenous version of our history and the non-indigenous version of our history because they are both telling the truth, but they are not telling the same story. I would contend they're not telling the same truth. I think one is at least is an alternative truth in modern parlance. Um, so if we were to apologise as professions, and one profession in Australia has already done it, I'll come to that, as mental health professions, we could apologise to Aboriginal people for our historic misunderstanding and mistreatment of Indigenous peoples and for dislocating them from their families and communities for our involvement in any applications of State Mental Health Act laws, policies and practices of successive governments which incarcerated um, Indigenous people out of proportion to those in the wider community. For long periods in our mental institutions, far beyond their proportion in the general population, alienating and dislocating them further from their families, communities, country and culture. We could apologise for any of our psychiatric practices which may have misdiagnosed and mistreated grief, loss and family, land and identity and demoralisation and mislabeled that as depression. For any practices which would have labelled spiritual experience as schizophrenia, political resistance as intransigent or psychopathic behaviours and mistaking cultural defiance and protest or disturbing behaviours as the disturbed behaviours of paranoid or difficult patients. There's a difference between disturbing and disturbed behaviour. And there's often a good reason for disturbing behaviour. These days, in IT world, they call it disruption. And we want, they wanted to disrupt a comfortable colonial reality. We could apologise for those past psychiatric practices which sometimes conveyed pessimistic or hopeless clinical outlooks to Indigenous patients and their families, contributing to demoralisation, spirit breaking and suicide. Instead, we should have instilled hope and invoked therapeutic optimism. We should have offered Indigenous people more consistent expectations and glimpses of their potential for recovery and encouragement and support to take control of their lives. We could apologise for not seeing the value earlier of traditional healing factors, which you've heard about, inherent in intact or sustained Indigenous cultures, for not recognising emerging evidence that many traditional cultural healing practices can contribute to recovery and better outcomes in synergy with evidence for biopsychosocial interventions. <clears throat> in other words, the synergy can be between traditional methods and 
Western evidence-based method, method, uh, methods, so-called evidence-based. There's more than one form of evidence. For only late, and we could apologise for only lately beginning to see and acknowledge that these factors are crucial for the recovery of Indigenous peoples and also for the wider community. We therefore should resolve to take responsibility for our actions and learnings now and in the future and resolve to work towards making changes that will contribute to improving Indigenous social and emotional health and well-being. In the process of developing our apology and subsequently our professions are urged to consult and work together actively with all Indigenous communities towards building culturally appropriate emotional health and well-being services for all Indigenous peoples and in learning by their example of working in two ways. Mason Dury, Professor Mason Dury, the first um, um, and senior Maori psychiatrist in New Zealand, talks about working two ways together to improve such services for all our communities. Some people talk about this as being culturally bilingual at the same time, and it's, it also, um, <coughs> means that some people work in a much more co complex and live in a much more complex way because they understand both whitefellow and blackfellow ways at the same time and they can speak both languages and they can see, see it both ways and sometimes they can use both um, to um, um, do something that's wonderful for our entire community, like Yvonne Gulagong, as you were saying, and, and um, so on. So where to from here? Well, submissions to Mental Health Australian Professionals Association, representing all mental health apologies and, and professional associations, was that we were we sent them to between 2009 and 2011. Um, they, they were sent these, but they thought they had already done the apology through um, chiming into the Rudd apology, but it wasn't for the spe specific things that psychiatry did. It was taken up by the World Psychiatric Association Public Policy and Psychiatry and Conflict Resolution Sections um, and um, as affecting all individual peoples, leading to a, a featured presidential debate at WPA Main Congress in Berlin in, in um, October last year. And there have been further representations to individual pro professional organisations in Australia and New Zealand since 2015 but only one organisation has, has done an apology in their own words, as they should do, and that's the Australian Psychological Society, who have voiced and published their own apology to vast acclaim by the membership and internationally to a standing ovation of their membership at their annual Congress and with acclaim by, and, and with no objection from their 22,000 members. The Australian Indigenous nurses and midwives are also urging their mainstream professional bodies to consider such an apology. Now, they don't want it just from the, the mental health professions, they want it from, the, from general nursing as well. So that is a world first. Um, Pat Dudgeon said about this, in this respect, this, this has uh, been published in the Australian's, uh, Australasian Psychi Psychologist. In this respect, the, uh, the Australian Psychological Society has made history <coughs> by being the first to formally apologise to Indigenous peoples for past oppressive practices and to vow to make systemic changes. It was made at the Australian Psychological Society Congress 
in Melbourne in 2016. This has become a significant event that gained considerable worldwide media attention and has impact not only in Australia but internationally, with the American Psychological Association now developing a similar apology to their Indigenous people. We hope it happens. Um, so it is likely that such an apology may contribute to the breaking of the cycle of fear and distrust which leads Indigenous um, people to often do anything to avoid mental health services and general health services, as was mentioned, until they have extremely florid conditions which finally cause emergency services to intercept them with high levels of subduing technologies. It may also contribute to a renewal of trust and restored faith that if culturally informed, the mental health workforce may be part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. In other words, that we emancipate ourselves, not just um, victim populations. And <clears throat> we would also possibly then see the fast tracking of culturally congenial social and emotional health and wellbeing services including Indigenous mental health professionals and their peer workers trained in both current clinical mental health care and traditional healing practices. So <clears throat> I should mention also that there's the Faharata International Declaration that was done in 2013 um, about mental health services generally and the Gaya Dewey Declaration in 2015 um, which was done for Australia um, and Australian, through the Australian Mental Health Leadership Group. <clears throat> I'd like to conclude with the pros and cons <clears throat> because you learn on the way about, there are some caveats um, that we should, uh, we should learn about. The pros are the capacity to reboot the healing process that we can begin to clear the air of transgenerational anger, frustration, despair and trauma. We can harmonise personal and public relationships so they can negotiate with mutual respect. We can overcome being speechless by grappling with pain and traumatic memories. We can make a commitment and reassure that it will not happen again because apologies for things that are still happening are not trusted or if you don't trust that organisation to stop doing it or not just restart doing it. We should also, in, it will also encourage Indigenous people that they can approach mental health services <clears throat> at an earlier phase and with re renewed trust and confidence when they need them. Now only non-Indigenous people can initiate such an apology and should deliver it with their own words and voices, but it must be in words and terms that Indigenous people can find acceptable. So it requires very detailed and continuous consultation. But only Indigenous people know in what words and in terms an apology would be acceptable, would be well received, and could be considered to be helpful and potentially healing. And we're not talking about forgiveness, remember. So the cons against having an apology, which we should consider, or at least make sure we build into our, our strategy. First of all, if colonisers still benefit from dispossession, apologies may have a hollow ring. <clears throat> all of a community can offer an apology, but only victims and descendants can forgive, although forgiveness is not sought. 
It may be experienced as re-traumatising, some people think, but this is usually uncommon or mild enough to be outweighed by the benefits, the validation, as Steve has taught me about, and also about the healing potential. Are they only empty words with no actions? Is the apology just superficial? What practical actions are the proposers taking to correct the wrongs done? <clears throat> and public apologies are not a magical solution. They are only a beginning. So I think um, I will leave it there um, with the hope that this little momentum that's starting to grow will continue and that we um, not only atone for some of the things that have been mentioned by both Joanne and Robin, but that we actually can have um, very constructive <clears throat> actions that will um, bring both mental health workers and the Aboriginal communities together again. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for some fantastic speeches. My name is Lindy Matthews. I am a psychiatrist. I am, from my accent, originally British, but I'm actually a Kiwi now. My children are New Zealanders, and I've come to work in Sydney in the last 10 months. I am a colleague and great respecter of Professor Alan Rosen, and we both have um, roles with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Committee, and I also am strongly linked to the Māori Mental Health Committee at the college also and have worked in Māori mental health in New Zealand for 10 years. My question is a challenge to the mental health professions in Australia, but to psychiatrists, and I count myself amongst you. I hear so many words, and I am very keen to see some activity. My current role is with Headspace, an, an organisation whose values and work I have great admiration for. So I work out at Mount Druitt, I see no Aboriginal people at Mount Druitt that I know of. They're not questions that we, that we ask. We have no Aboriginal cultural advisors working with us from Penrith to Parramatta. Um, I met a wonderful judge who I know works at um, one of the Koori courts in Parramatta the other day. She said to me, you must be seeing loads of my kids. I wouldn't have a clue. So what I want to do is I want to understand how we move from an apology, which if you'll forgive me is more words, and what are we going to do to actually put our money where our mouth is and insist that we are publicly supporting the Uluru Statement, um, the things that we know that psychosocially are going to make a difference to Aboriginal people. Thank you. I wasn't going to say anything um, just because I might speak for too long. But um, Magistrate Duncombe and the work of the Youth Court is known to me and it's 
with her actually where I sit as an elder on the Youth Court Court. We do know that um, as a result of the activities that we've done in this space, other culturally and linguistically diverse communities are also getting their elders together to provide the similar service. The problem that we've had in the Youth Courier Court is we run on goodwill and nobody's paid. That's not a problem. The problem is we need specialists to help the kids. Um, half the children who have been using the Youth Courier Court have in fact diagnostic issues that actually need to be seen with by professionals. We have ones that I would just simply refer to as stolen gens. Um, their parents are all alive, they live very close, um, but their parents were deemed to have poor parenting skills and rather than helping the parents develop apparently what the skills are required to be a good parent, and I'd really like to see where those values are somewhere, so they're listed, um, and the reason for that is because once you're subject to those orders from the government, it's very difficult to work your way back and to, to get your kids back. And it requires a lot of work on the parents, not just on the skills the court wants them to have, but, but on their own value and their own self-worth. So I'm not going to say anything more, but I didn't get to say it today, but for me, you really do need to read the statement from the heart. Our politicians have failed us. Apology is really important. And I don't care whether or not people think we're in a generation of people making apologies. In Aboriginal society, one of the first words you learn to say is sorry. And you're goddamn sorry for everything. You're sorry for what happened to your relatives. You're sorry for what didn't happen to people. But you want to stop feeling sorry. Right? And that's one of the things we work through in our lives and we need to unpack. And I think that the, the statement, it's Makarata, it's quite clear, quite simple, and it's something that we can build on. Can I say, can I say something to that too? <clears throat> Lindy, I'm a bit caught on the statement that with respect, it's just more words, or it is more words. And so we really ought to think about our college, which has produced lots of words, lots of good words, but no words in these terms. And the issue is that they haven't faced the hard issues, which this has a program towards meeting, which is, has to, it, it's, only, it's only a start or a reboot, as we're saying. It's a matter of what action the professions will take. So, for instance, the issues you raise at, at Mount Druitt um, and Blacktown, we have Aboriginal mental health workers in the country areas, but we don't seem to have the same coverage in the city areas, particularly where there are, we know there are Aboriginal populations to engage people into our services. So we're not even getting to base one. It's similar to the fact that we have respite centres um, in some of the country areas, but none in the city areas in this state. Whereas in Victoria, they have Aboriginal specific respite residential respite centres rather than going to hospital, which can be culturally congenial. So there are lots of things we need to address, very practical things, and we also need to address the, the, the spiritual and transgenerational trauma issues. I just, you know, um, I think, you know, the, 10 days ago, I have finished a, a for workshop in shamanic studies. It was run by a foundation of shamanic studies from United States. 
the students were doctors, there were psychiatrists, there were scientists, you know, and so on and so on. And I think that we learn a lot. And I, I think, you know, why Aborigines healers, healers shouldn't teach us, you know, how to cope with psychiatric issues and other issues. It is what I wanted to say. Um, this, this can be enshrined in the law. In Western Australia, the, the Mental Health Act there specifies that before you put any Aboriginal person on an involuntary order, you must um, get them to be able to speak to a traditional healer or an Aboriginal mental health worker who should be able to work out some alternative way of, of managing the problems they have um, be, before they consider an involuntary order. In the Northern Territory, they have that sort of sentiment in the preamble of the Mental Health Act, but they don't have it in the actual act. In WA, they have it in the act. So there are th practical things you can do that we're not doing all around Australia. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.